Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today. Grab your Bibles if you haven't yet, please. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 5 and want to welcome um, our friends across the foyer in worship too and also folks down in Columbus. And today we begin a um, study on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 to 7. And let me tell you a little bit about our plans. Our plans are to make our way through these hard-hitting chapters uh, through most of the summer. So the summer is going to be about this theme of get real. And then we're going to take a break in August. There was a, a time a number of years ago that College Park had a little tradition here where you used to do a marriage and family emphasis month. And we're going to take August and going to change it just a little bit. We're going to do a relationship-focused month. And uh, the title of that series is this, How to Kill Relationships and Irritate People. So... <laughs> And, uh, and you need to be there, just ask your spouse, okay? So and what we're going to do is we're going to take uh, five or six different texts. It's not going to be topical, it'll be textual. And, uh, for example, one of the messages, um, how to kill relationships and irritate people, is just say whatever you want. That, that's one, okay? And there's like six key things that you can do to kill relationships and just really tick people off. And we're going to tell you what the Bible says about those. So August is going to be a fun month in that respect. So... Uh, Join us uh, for that. And so our plan is to wrap up this uh, series called Get Real just prior to the missions conference in October. So this summer and fall, it's going to be some great uh, time of just taking a look at, so who are we? Where do we really live? And, and how can we seriously get real? So the Sermon on the Mount is a powerful and impactful uh, portion of Scripture for a number of reasons. Let me give you three. The first is that it is the first message that we hear from Jesus. You, you could think of it like his inaugural address. These are the first words we hear from Matthew from Jesus' own mouth. The second thing is that it touches on a number of timely and, frankly, rather sensitive topics. For example, issues of anger and lust, divorce, uh, getting even, giving, worry, uh, prayer, judging, and good deeds are all talked about in this sermon. And, of course, none of us need to hear about any of those things, right? The third thing is that it takes on superficial religion. It, it takes this issue of a, a shallow, superficial, uh, trivial pursuit of God, and it takes it head on. And Jesus just gets after it. And that's why um, our series title is Get Real. Th this sermon is hard-heading um, in your face, shocking, and at times disturbing. So if you're one of those kind of people, and, and I talk to you uh, often after like a really hard sermon, you walk out, you're like, oh, I love getting my toes stepped on, okay? So if you're like that kind of person, you're going to totally dig this summer, okay? <laughs> totally dig it. If you're like, I don't like that, I don't like that, here's my answer. Tough come anyways, okay? So we want you to be here, and we're going to talk about some things that are really important, and frankly, we need to think about and pray through. It, this Sermon on the Mount is meant to be a wake-up call. It's sort of like Jesus uses um, this sermon to say, hey, this isn't the way that God intended things to be. Every pastor has their spiritual hero. Mine is uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of the Westminster Chapel from 1943 to 1968. He it's a great biography written by Ian Murray. I read it when I was just a new pastor, and it just was so helpful. And 
Um, Lloyd-Jones is uh, focused on the exposition of the word, the exaltation of it, his emphasis on revival, and just the, the beautiful, resonant Welch tone of his accent all just compel me to love him. He has a great book called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, and I would commend it to you. He does a much more thorough and, frankly, better job than I will ever do on this sermon and would love to have you read it, study it, pray over it. There's some 60 messages, so if you think this series is long, take heart. In that book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, Lloyd-Jones addresses why the Sermon on the Mount was relevant in the 1950s. I want you to see what he says. He writes this. I do not think it is harsh, it is a harsh judgment to say that the most obvious feature of the life of the Christian church today is, alas, its superficiality. That judgment is based not only on contemporary observation, but in light of previous epochs and eras in the life of the church. And that's how Lloyd-Jones introduces the subject matter of the Sermon on the Mount. And what you need to know is that this whole series is about addressing the issue of superficiality, superficial religion, shallow Christianity, or fake obedience. So the Sermon on the Mount is a message on being real. And what I pray will happen over the summer, some of you will come in and out with vacations, and that's great. But I hope that there will be some Sundays when you come in, and it just will be like, you know, that message was so for me. And my prayer is that some of you who are walking through the fake path right now, that you will realize this summer and into the fall, maybe even today, that genuine conversion has not come to you. And that you will realize that what your greatest need in all of the world is, is the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That today you will say, I cannot do this life on my own anymore. My, my prayer for those of us who know the name of Christ and have committed our lives to him is, is that there will be this, this schizophrenic thing that happens in you. That there will be, on the one hand, you will see the Sermon on the Mount and go, Oh, thank God you've done that in my heart. You're the one that's produced this stuff. And at the same time, you would say, Oh, God, help me. i got so far to go. That you'd see Peacemaker and go, Thank you. You, you, you put within my heart this desire to be a peacemaker. And then you think about all the dumb things you say to your family and your kids and your coworkers. And you just say, God, you help me. I'm assuming that everyone here at one level or another, has evidence of superficial religion. We all do. And then I would argue it's not just a problem in the 1950s or 60s. It was a problem in Jesus' day, and it's a problem today. And, and therefore, what we're going to do is we're going to figure out, God's grace, how this sermon applies in our lives, and what we can do to embrace, it, to embrace its message to say, you know what, come on, let's get real. Let's not play games when it comes to things like worry and lust and anger and giving and, and, and relationships and oaths and, and our word and judging. Let's, let's, let's not just play around because there's enough of that. Let's get serious and let's get real. That's what this sermon is about. Praise God that it's in our Bibles because we need it. So let me begin by giving you a big picture overview of this sermon in its context in Matthew. I want to set the stage so you understand how this fits. 
You could divide the book of Matthew up into five sections where there is narrative and then stories, or sermons and stories, discourse and then action. And Matthew organizes his book this way in order to show us both the words of Jesus and the way in which he lives. Those five sections are chapters 3 to 7, 8 to 10, 11 to 13, 14 to 18, and 19 to 25. If you were to look at those sections, in each of them you would find sections of discourse where Jesus is doing some teaching. And you'd also find some sections where uh, Jesus is doing some healing, some actions. And Matthew puts all this together in order to help us understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the one. That these Jewish Christians, to whom he's writing, when they placed their faith in Christ, did not place their faith in Jesus needlessly. That he was indeed the Messiah. And what's interesting is that at the end of each section, or the beginning of a new one, they're marked with this little phrase, and when Jesus finished these sayings, or something similar to that. And I've got the reference in my manuscript. You can see actual verses where every single time that happens, it introduces a new section of thought. And Matthew's intent was to show us that Jesus said some things, he did some things, and then after that, he's going to say some things and do some other things. And each section has a, a, a different but connected theme. And this theme is that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law and the prophets. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law of the pro- and the prophets, and he's highlighting the fact that he's the Messiah, and placing your faith in him is not a foolish thing to do. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is the first section of this discourse and action, this narrative and sermon uh, division that Matthew has in his book. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first one, and it goes through chapter 7. It's important for you to understand how to take this Sermon on the Mount. There's been a number of views throughout the history of interpretation on it, and and how you view this uh, sermon and its applicability really informs how you approach it. In in other words, how how you your predispositions or your, your preconceptions to this sermon inform how you interpret it. So I want you to know where I'm coming from so you know how I'm approaching this sermon. The first view, what I'm going to call the traditional dispensational view, has held that this sermon should be treated like Jewish law and that it was only really to be applied in the future coming kingdom. Schofield, Walverd, that group, good, solid men, but they viewed this dispensational traditional lens and put it on the sermon such that they didn't really think it applied to the church. This was just an expansion of the Old Testament law meant to be applied in a coming kingdom. The second view is um, a Lutheran view, and some Reformed folks hold this. It's to treat the sermon as an expansion of the Old Testament law, not in a coming kingdom application, but rather that it's meant to simply remind you, you can't do this and bring you to your knees so that then you'll turn to Christ. So the idea is this is the high demands of this are impossible, and this was not meant to be given to believers to somehow help you know how to live. This instead is to just be like the Old Testament law and with rules you can understand or make sense. So 
That view takes you and pushes you to your knees and says, you you can't do this, it's impossible. The third view is the social gospel view, which takes this sermon to be the defining ethic for all peoples and all cultures. Meaning that you ought to take the Sermon on the Mount and all the values that are expressed there and push them into the fabric of your society. The United States of America ought to reflect the the Beatitudes, ought to reflect the the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's good for all lands, all peoples, so Iran and Iraq and, and Liberia. Togo and Ghana, those countries should have the, the, the Beatitudes and specifically the Sermon on the Mount as their operating ethic. Now, the fourth view is my view, and it's called the correct view. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not, because I think it's right. So anyways... I hold that the sermon shows us, and here's the key word, the ethics of grace. Okay, This was helpful to me. I found this in a commentary. The ethics of grace. Now, it's distinguished between the ethics of obedience. Okay, So it's not like I obey, and these are the ethics of how I obey. This is different. These are the ethics of what happens when Jesus invades my life. So let me give you a definition. Ethics of grace is the outworking of the invasion of God's kingdom in my life. So how this works is, I realize that I need a Savior. Jesus invades my heart. He conquers it. He takes over. He says, this is mine. I own you. And then he changes the orientation of my soul. What I love, what I hunger, what I thirst after, what I desire. And then out of my life comes this character that is produced by God. So, so do I do the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount? Absolutely. But I, I don't do them. It's Christ in me that's doing them. He, the Sermon on the Mount then is about the character of the kingdom in my heart that the gospel creates. And the reason why this is important is because the demands of the sermon are simply going to be impossible. You won't be able to perfectly keep the sermon, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for the beautiful reality of what Jesus is talking about. And and here's the schizophrenic thing that I'm talking about. I mean that you, you realize, take hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you realize I hunger and thirst for righteousness because of you. You created the appetite. You created the spiritual taste buds in my mouth to receive your word and say, yes, that is what I love. God did that. You did not do that in yourself. God did that in you. And then at the same time that you're rejoicing over that, there's this other thing that comes in and you think, but, oh, I wish I could have more appetite and more desire. And there's things that I can do to facilitate more and more desire to kind of throw myself into the stream of God's grace. But it's God's grace that pulls me along. So I jump into the current and His current pulls me along. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's this thing of thank you for changing my affections and oh, please help me do more of that by your grace. So when I look at this, I see an already not yet all over the place. That's how I see the kingdom. I see that the kingdom of Christ is an already not yet thing. It means that Jesus' kingdom has come to rest in my heart. He's taken over So it's already present, but it's not fully manifest. And I'm waiting for another future kingdom. So there's this sense of where God is working and producing real righteousness in me, but yet there's a day when I long for this sermon to be applied in a whole new way on the earth. So this is ethics of grace. That that was really helpful for me. Ethics 
of grace. This is how grace-filled, God-loving, Jesus-conquered, Spirit-filled people live. It's the ethics of being invaded by the kingdom of grace. So, what is the theme in terms of its overall point? It's this. It is how to live in light of the saving rule of God. And it's outlined this way. The setting begins in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, where we see that Jesus sits down at a mountain and he opens his mouth and begins to teach the disciples. The introduction is where we are today. That's the Beatitudes all the way through the salt and light texts. And then we get into practical living, where Jesus begins to identify the radical difference between kingdom living and non-kingdom living. And then we see the conclusion where he calls people to choose between two ways, the narrow way, the short way, or the narrow way or the wide way, rather. He talks about two different places you can build, on the rock or on the sand. And the conclusion then leads to the response of the people where they are astonished at his teaching. So that's the outline. Now finally, let me talk about one more really important piece. One really important piece, and that is this. How do you understand Jesus' teaching? Meaning, there are times, candidly, when I will read the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, and I am honestly more comfortable with how Paul says things than how Jesus says things. Paul um, gives more of the arguments that are surrounding a point where Jesus just says it. Just says it, just bold, sometimes paradoxical statements. And, and knowing Jesus' style and knowing why he's saying what he does is really important. Here's what often happens. Jesus often makes strong paradoxical statements without all of the qualifications that the statement might need. So for instance, Jesus will say something, and even though what he says is true, there's all sorts of things, applications that you can go, well, what about this? And what about that? What about this? What about this? But Jesus doesn't spend all the time talking about all the whatabouts. And the reason is, is, as a speaker, I know why he wouldn't do this, because if you do that, that's all you'd talk about. You'd make one point and spend the rest of your time talking about all the exceptions, or, now don't take it this way, be sure you don't think that, and by the time you got all the way around the circle, people will have forgotten what your main point is. So, when you're trying to address a very specific problem, and you're trying to address an issue where people are being called to wake up, you leave to the application in their lives all of the ramifications of what you're saying. And sometimes you even communicate it in a paradoxical way in order to shock people and to get their attention. Because here's the thing, religious people have been lulled into thinking that they've got it. And sometimes you need bold, paradoxical, conflicting, provocative language so that spiritually minded people will wake up Their eyes are open physically, but their eyes are closed spiritually. They've heard it all before, and before long, they they begin to hear a message like Charlie Brown's teacher. And what they need is someone to say, hey, wake up, this is real, get real. That's, That's what's needed. Let me give you an illustration of this, what Jesus does. Example, Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light, we'll look at this next week, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. Let your light shine before others so they can see your good works. And then just a few verses later, in chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. It's like, wait a minute. He just says one thing and then another. Let your light shine 
be careful, don't let your light shine. I mean, and the reason is because Jesus is addressing two different issues, and he's not going to take all the time to say that, well, and this and that and this and that and this and that and this. Because frankly, that is the way that spiritually shallow and superficial people end up taking a bold word and finding a way to sideline it. And not that clear thinking and critical thinking and objections aren't valid. But listen, there are some times when we need to put our objections aside and stop thinking because we we use our minds to convince us that we have obeyed and known and believed a truth when the reality is we're just wrestling with it intellectually so it doesn't ever take root in our hearts. The problem, beloved, is superficial religion. And it is scary. Another example would be Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 29, better, or commands rather, the gouging out of your eye if it causes you to lust. So it's a stunning statement. Gouge out your eye. Better to enter heaven maimed than to have your whole body and then burn. And see, what Jesus is doing, he's saying hard things to break through the hardened, superficial, hypocritical religion. He's using strong language to make his point. He's using shocking, provocative words to be able to help us understand that there are many times when religion becomes so familiar, so part of our culture, so part of our family and our upbringing, that we end up getting to a place where we know all the stuff and the reality is we are not real. So that's why he says... The sad are blessed. Persecution makes you rejoice. That's weird. Keeping the rules doesn't make you religious. Uh, Giving money away is a good investment. And here's a startling one. Doing great ministry, even miracles, people getting saved, doesn't mean you know Jesus. That's scary. So, superficiality is always a problem for people who claim to be religious. And the Sermon on the Mount is an assault on the status quo. And therefore, Jesus uses shocking, direct, and provocative words. And frankly, they're helpful. And they're appropriate. Because we need him to wake us up. In fact, the people, as they heard his words, were so moved that this is how... Matthew describes their response. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The reality is, I think there's something within all of us that we long for clear, bold, straightforward, and even provocative teaching Because we know that in the dark recesses of our hearts, all of us, there are little buckets of superficial religion that need to go. And we know that the only way that we conquer those issues is with a kind of hard-hitting, rough message of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, shocking information, I think, is often motivating. You You can't have it all the time. You can't do it every day. But shocking information for a particular season it is helpful. I was, uh, <laughs> was recently at the dentist for my six-month checkup, and it had been two years since I'd been. <laughs> and as a part of my checkup, the uh, very nice dental hygienist, who looked like she was about 
16, asked me a number of questions trying to diagnose my, you know, um, tooth health. And she asked me the doomsday question. You know what the doomsday question is, don't you? Yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, you've been there, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. How often do you floss? In fact, they even made me write it down inside my name on this form. So I put a big fat question mark. I was like, I'll play your game, watch this. So I put a question mark down. So she comes down, she says, oh, so you put a question mark on the flossing. I said, yep. She said, well, well, how often do you floss? And I said, eh, Invari- invariably. <laughs> and she said, well, what does that mean? I said, I, I floss when I eat corn. That's my standard. <laughs> and then she got out this instrument that was supposed to measure my gums and, and, and whether or not they've receded or not or things of that sort. And she goes, okay, now, now listen, when I say a two, that's good. When I say three, that's not so good. And four is bad. I'm like, okay. And, and I'm telling you, when she's, she, so she pulls in another hygienist in. She's like, okay, you ready? Ready, here we go. And I think there's this game that they play because as she's going through my, my teeth, she's like, two, two, three, four, four, four. Three, four, four. And I'm telling you, it's like she's telling the whole office, four, we got a four in here, we got a four in here. And I'm like, just be quiet. And I'm just, I'm feeling like shamed. And then, and then it wasn't over. Then it, no, no, it wasn't over. Because then she gets out these charts and she shows me, now these are your teeth right here, right? And see this, this is your gum line. It's receding. See that bone? It's going to go down, down, down. And then she's, then you're going to lose your teeth. And I'm, I'm waiting for the next chart to be like Billy Bob without any teeth. You know, <laughs> this could be you, pal. Right here. So I get done the appointment. Oh, oh, and I tell my wife, I'm like, you know what? This was so embarrassing. And, 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 the, and the, the climax of the uh, dental visit was this. She said, look, I'm not trying to lecture you. And I'm not trying to scare you. But the reality was that was exactly what she was trying to do. And it worked. At least for two weeks. <laughs> and somehow, sometimes we need that. We need shocking information. To be able to help us see, look, if, if you don't change, this is what's going to happen to you. And sometimes we need somebody to come in our life and go, two, 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 three, four, four, four. Because the reality is, we got four issues. We got the receding level of spirituality. And the purpose of this sermon is to show us the ethics of grace and to show us this in shocking and startling ways. That's this book. That's why we need the Sermon on the Mount. So, the Beatitudes are the first. And the first 12 verses are often called the Beatitudes. If you wonder, how how do you get the word Beatitudes from this passage? Well, it's from a Latin word, Beatitudo, and it means blessing. And so, these first verses became known as the Beatitudes because of the word blessed. So, that's the first thing we need to look at. So, what does the word blessed mean? The word blessed means, in a spiritual sense, that one receives God's approval. That one receives his favor, his endorsement, his congratulations. So it's not that I do something and then God blesses me. That's not what this word means. It it can mean that in other contexts. And it's not even happy. Happy is, it's in there, but that's not, that's not big enough. What this word means is the person who has received God's grace, who's been endorsed by God, who's been given God's favor, who's been set in God's love, that's the person who is poor in spirit and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the blessedness is the product of the invasion of the kingdom, not God's stamp of approval over my obedience. The blessedness is the ground upon which the poverty of spirit happens. We need to get the cart and the horse aligned. The the cart is 
My action, the horse, is God's blessing. The blessing comes, his approval comes before my action. So that God is then saying that this person who's poor in spirit has received my favor. The blessedness of Matthew 5 is connected with the receiving of God's grace. Look at this quote. God initiates blessing by graciously condescending to save people. They respond to God's initiative by blessing God with praise and obedient living. Their present experience of God's reign in Jesus motivates them to live in light of its future intensification. There it is again, already and not yet. The pattern is to highlight the character of the blessed person and then to explain the promise of God to such a person. So the the blessing is a present reality. It's not just something that I, I have in the future, but it's a present thing now. It's a unique way of living in light of something that is going to be even more fully developed in the future. So I have this thing now, and it's going to be even further developed in the future, but I live in it and live by it and through it immediately. So I tried to think of an illustration of this. The best that I can come up with is this, that when I got engaged... To Sarah, my relationship with her changed. We, we made a commitment that there was a date that we were going to be married, and it changed our relationship. There was a trajectory. We knew there was hope, and there was this, this day that was coming, that marriage was on the horizon. And it changed our relationship, but not in every way, but in different ways than when we were dating. And the dating to engagement to marriage, that distinction is the way in which the blessing of God appears in this text. That God's approval comes upon us, and we are waiting for a coming day when the full approval of Christ will be manifest in our lives. But you know what's so beautiful about this list and where the, the marriage thing breaks down? It is that Sarah and I both pursued each other and according to how I understand my Bible, it was God who first pursued me. And that means that the Sermon on the Mount is precious, not because it's a new law, but because it's as though Jesus is saying, because of who you are and because of the future and what it is, this is how you should live. Because of who you are, because of what I have done to you, because you are blessed, because you are approved, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because of the future of what it is, that one day, that there's coming a day when all of this will be finally consummated and seeing Jesus as He is, that this then changes how we see everything in life. And the ethic is an ethic of grace flowing from God's ability to transform us from the inside out. So what happens is that the gospel changes how we see everything. Last night I happened to be in a, um, a candy store um, in uh, downtown uh, Carmel. And um, I was walking in there with my kids and one of the workers in this candy store showed me something I'd never seen before. It was a five-pound gummy bear. It said it took like 500 gummy bears to make, and I believe it, because the thing was, was really heavy. And, and I was just curious, I flipped it over on the back, and, and I looked at the number of servings on it and the calorie count per serving. I was just curious, because 
what happened is a number of years ago, I became interested in those things because as I began to run on a treadmill, I noticed that after a mile, it just had the little number 100 on it, on calories burned. And that began to change the way that I saw food because suddenly now I'm like, that's a five-mile run burger right there, right? So as I'm holding this gummy bear, I asked her, how many calories is this thing? She goes, I don't know. So I flipped it over, got my calculator, and my wife's kind of rolling her eyes. I'm looking at the thing, and I'm like, 12,600 calories. Do you know how many miles that is? It's 105 miles, right? So that changed how I'm like, put it away, put it away, don't touch it. Look at calories from touching that thing, right? Don't touch it. I'll have to walk fast to get back to the car. It's 12,600 calories. So that changed how I view this cute little gummy bear. It's like from, it's terrible. It's, I can't, I can't, it's awful. It's 105 miles. And it, it, it changes how you see life. And what the Sermon on the Mount does is it, is it radically, because of the way in which Jesus has invaded your heart, it changes how you view sin and yourself and your rights. It, it, it causes things that other people see, you see them differently because of Jesus' invasion of you. So the first four Beatitudes relate to how we relate to God. And the first one is in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It means that we embrace the fact that we are completely dependent. Listen, authentic spirituality. For those of you who are here today and you're still seeking, you're trying to figure out how to be able to connect the dots between your soul and your creator and how the cross and Jesus fits in, listen very carefully. Authentic spirituality begins with an understanding that you are broken and bankrupt spiritually. Anything that you do is tainted by the effects of your sin and the thing that needs to happen before you could ever receive Christ or understand the gospel or know what the Bible is about is you you have to, by God's Spirit working in you, come to the conclusion that you can't do life on your own anymore. One of the greatest hindrances to you coming to receive Christ and asking God to forgive your sins is is you. It's thinking, I can do this. I can figure out a way. I can do a little more. I can give a little more. I can be a little more. And the Bible says, you're dead. You can't. Any more than telling a squirrel on the side of the road has been hit by a car. He's been dead four days and he's thin like a pancake. Get up, squirrel! He's not. He's going to lay there. He's dead. He can't do it because he's spiritually, he's physically dead. Squirrel's not tied to spiritual. Okay, so he's physically dead. You're spiritually dead. And the Bible says that to be poor in spirit means that we acknowledge our absolute inadequacy and our dependence on God. It is exactly the opposite of spiritual pride. Spiritual pride is what the Pharisees constantly express, this sense of, I'm better than others, I'm, I'm doing... And you can always find somebody behind you to make yourself feel better. At least I'm not like blank. And you know what, there's going to be a lot of people who wake up in a Christless eternity who all their life said, at least I'm not like blank. 
And yet the heart of Isaiah 66.2 says this, This is the one upon whom I look. This is God saying this. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It is the poor in spirit that inherit, that have, that possess the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. You don't get the kingdom unless you come to the conclusion, I can't do this. I can't. I need your help. Save me. Help me. That death that Jesus did, count that for me. Make that my death. Forgive me through that work. That's how poverty of spirit happens. And then the rest of our life, we live with this constant sense, I can't do this. And we don't say, I can't do this like we're angry. We say this, I can't do this. Would you help me? That's what it means to be poor in spirit. The second one is, blessed are those who mourn. Verse 4 for they shall be comforted. Jesus is commending the humble refusal to insist that you don't need to feel bad about your sin, that you don't need to weep, that you don't feel, need to feel sad. He's saying mourn, mourning over our sin. That's what the, that's what the word mourning there means. 1 Corinthians 5, 2, James 4, 9. They both use it in the context of, of mourning over our sin. Psalm 119 says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. So what does he have in mind here? He is commending and calling people to a view of life that sheds and shuns this lighthearted attitude regarding the serious issues of life, particularly the serious issues of our transgressions against God. It indicates that divine comfort only comes to those who take their sins seriously. It's the man or woman who says, I can't believe how free I am now that I've finally confessed. They're comforted. And one of the ways that we play around and we don't get real and we embrace superficial religion is we constantly think, if I confess, it'll be bad. And it's the reverse. That you mourn over your sin and take it seriously, that you will be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus here is telling us that we must not insist on our own rights. Meekness is not weakness. It means power under control. It means that there's a greater power that's in play, a greater power that's in force, and that triumphs over my desire to have my own needs met, my own desires, my own rights. So the, the, the thing is, is that something comes and eclipses my needs and my desires. And that need or that desire, that power, is dependency upon God. It means that even though I could assert my rights, I choose not to. Even though my spouse has done me wrong, I still choose to fully own my part of the sin equation. Meekness is only possible because God is the one who owns it all. And that is what it means when Jesus says the meek inherit the earth. They are given all things. That God blesses them because he owns everything. And God has infinite resources to provide, spiritual resources to those who will simply say, God, I'm going to release my rights. I will have power under control. And then the final one, number four is this idea of right desires. 
that you would hunger and thirst for righteousness. That there would be this, this hungering and thirsting for everything that's right. Jesus uses hunger and thirst to describe the intense desires. He's driving home this point that kingdom-minded people don't just do good things once in a, in a while. They have a passionate desire for righteousness. That there's a hunger and a thirst. That the single consuming passion, the longing of their heart, is for righteousness. And the beautiful thing is that God satisfies them and He fills them when they hunger and thirst for the right things. Listen, there has got to be some people here this morning that you are in a relentless pursuit to try and fill up your heart and you're trying all sorts of things. And I've got news for you. The only thing that really satisfies is Jesus. He he is. The only thing that really matters, the only thing that really can fill up a heart is this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the Bible tells us that when you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you know that God is the one who's done this, He's created this appetite in you for Him, and that is the only thing that is truly satisfying, that you hunger and thirst for everything that is right. And as a result, they are famished. They are envious. They're they're yearning for righteousness. And because of that, they are truly satisfied. So last night, I I couldn't help think of this point. As I watched a meal delivered to a table next to us, we were at um, Bub's Burgers. And apparently there's a burger there called the Big Ugly. You ever heard of it? And apparently if you eat one, you get a four-by-six picture on the wall of shame, I guess is what it is. And then if you eat two of these things, you get an eight by ten, and they put your picture like like you're like you're proud of that. I don't, I don't know. I don't understand that. And, and I saw these guys, like four guys, and they had these big. I mean, these burgers are are um, uh, twenty two ounces of of burger before they cook it, so it ends up being an actual pound of burger. And here's these guys, and they're just I'm I'm, I'm, I'm like talking, talking, watching, talking, talking, watching, watching them eat. And I saw the guy he ate his last bite, and he said to his friend, "Dude, I'm not going to eat for three days." <laughs> I'm like, this is fun. You do this on purpose, right? And, and, I'm not going to eat for three days. And and the reality is that that our approach to righteousness ought to be this sense of my, what, what you drink in on the Lord's day is this sense of so satisfying, so full, so invigorated with Christ. Here's here's why it's not like Bub's Burger because when you get home in the next morning, you want more of Jesus. So it's satisfying, not to the extent that you want less. It's satisfying and you want even more. It doesn't create fullness that stops the appetite. It creates a hunger that expands the appetite. And and that is why the beautiful reality of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is so compelling. That these are the characteristics of those who are followers of Jesus. These are the ethics of people who have been invaded by God's grace. And I can think of no better illustration of the Sermon on the Mount than what we do in the Lord's table. Because Jesus literally takes food and says, this is my body, this is my blood. And, and, and so you could eat the, the, the wafer and, the, and drink the cup, and you're not going to be physically satisfied, but this is spiritual satisfaction. No greater emblem than the Lord's table. And as we think about this, may I ask you a few questions? The first would be this. Does 
Does superficial religion describe you? I mean, seriously, are you a follower of Jesus? Do you really know what it means to have turned from your sin and fully trusted in Christ? Do you know today that you are real? Do you know that? Okay, so say you know that. Has shallowness taken over your walk with Christ? Has grace and the gospel become so normal to you that it's just part of your life instead of the attraction of your soul? When it comes to humility, does that, does that describe you? Do you cultivate humility? Is, is spiritual pride a part of your life? You know how spiritual pride, how you know it's there? It's when you hear a message and it's like really strong and you go, man, I hope John's here hearing this today. And you never, it doesn't, doesn't cross your mind about you. You don't, you don't hear the Bible as a dear you letter. You hear it as a dear John letter to somebody else. That, that's spiritual pride. Oh, I hope my husband's listening. When, when, when the reality is you know your own sin better than anybody else. Are you taking sin seriously? Does, 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 does sin bother you? Do, you? do you feel guilty? Does, do, you, do you ever weep over how far you have to go? Because you realize that guilt is a very good thing. When the guilt goes away, the hardness of heart has set in and you're in big trouble. It is a sign of God's judgment when you no longer feel guilty. Are you controlled by the Spirit? Do you relinquish your rights? Are you quick to ask forgiveness? Are you a God-pleaser? Do you have power under control? Or have you just used your anger and the Bible and suddenly now you've become a flaming, Bible-thumping, angry person? Are you spiritually hungry? Do you long for righteousness? Do you want more of Jesus? So you come to this table today realizing that superficiality is not just a problem in the 1950s or the 2009, and it's not just a problem in Jesus' day. Superficiality, beloved, is a human problem. It is that spirituality tends towards the path of least resistance, and sometimes what we need is a shocking message to wake us up to the reality of what's going on, and the Sermon on the Mount does that. It shows us what happens when God's grace storms in and takes over the heart, and when He takes over, it produces these ethics of grace that are beautiful and also traumatic. Beautiful in the sense that you know, God, without you, this would never happen, and at the same time, you know, oh God, please, Give me more of that, please, please, please. I want to be more mourning over my sin. I want to be more impoverished in my spirit. I need to be meek deeply in my soul, and I want more hunger for righteousness. Please help me. That's the spirit of this ethic of grace as Jesus taught his disciples. And that is what we celebrate in this table. So, Lord, I pray that... um, you would use this meal, spiritual meal that we're going to partake of in order to create the satisfaction of our souls. I pray today that you, Lord, would, would wake us up to the reality of who we are. And thank you that your grace has created these, these appetites that would never be here apart from you. You're so good, and yet we have so far 
to go. So Lord, thank you for grace and forgive us for taking it for granted. So Lord, now use these elements, use this cup, use this bread as a reminder of the invasion of grace and the ethics that come along with it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.